Hey friends, Mike Myers here with Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 29, Krista Makes. Now before we get into that, I want to let you know that I'm hosting a four-week live masterclass on how to arrange, dial in better tones, and start mixing your own guitars. There is no reason why you can't be doing this shit from home. Because right now in the pandemic, one thing has made it abundantly clear, we don't need expensive studios to get things done. Sometimes all we need is a little guidance, a little mentorship, and just a push to get us moving because I've seen so many songwriters gain traction in this area and start making money from home. So if this is something that you're really intrigued, that you're looking to do this, all you have to do is go to songwritingforguitar.com and click Tracking Like a Pro Masterclass to reserve your spot. Everything kicks off April 10th. Now, Chris is one of the founding members of Less Than Jake and hosts the Krista Makes podcast. We're going to talk about his early days of songwriting and guitar and how Less Than Jake has formed an overwhelming and huge devoted fan base and how do they keep that momentum going. I gush about how many times I saw Less Than Jake at Warp Tour and other concerts and you'll find how it's hard for me to say the word cutlery because let's be honest, how often do we say it? So enough of this, let's jump into it. Episode number 29, Chris Mix. I am super pumped to talk to you because I remember your record, I think the first introduction to Less Than Jake, I got Hello Rock View because it was a recommendation for a friend. And I remember then buying a whole bunch of records, every warp tour I went to. It was like, who's on? Lesson Jake's on. And it's like, okay, great. I remember 2003 seeing you guys at Club Laga and you brought Bang Tango. And I remember just being like, that was a wild show. And we got to play one time Warp Tour in the Kevin Says stage. And you pointed to me in the catering line where the forks were. And I remember being like, hey, where are the forks? And you were like, oh, they're right over there. And I was like, that's so cool. And I was like, it's Chris from Lesson Jake. He told me where the cutlery was. I, I, I don't think anyone's ever told me that, that a story where I pointed the cutlery out before. <laughs> Except maybe when I was washing dishes at that Italian restaurant years ago. Well, I mean, that's what I want to get into because I know you from Lesson Jake, but I'd love to know your start at the beginning, especially like delving into guitar. Where, was guitar kind of like your intro instrument or was there something before that? Well, it was something from, you know, my inception basically. So uh, my in august of 73 yes i'm dating myself and i was already pissed off when we got on this morning because you're way younger and better looking than me so you already got two strikes against you <laughs> but uh <laughs> and uh but yeah so august of 73 i uh, mom and dad went to go see neil diamond uh, in detroit at an amphitheater and uh, i was kicking and going nuts in my mom's belly and it was about a month later I was born. And you know, my earliest memories were getting dragged around from bars and nightclubs and uh, wedding receptions and graduation parties and, and retirement parties and bar mitzvahs and, and you name it. Uh, my mom and dad were entertainers. They sang. So um, dad played guitar and uh, they, he had like a drum machine that he worked with both of his feet. And this was primitive shit in the 70s. So the fact That's that crazy was, with his feet. Yeah, yeah. So he was working. A, I mean, they were all, it was programmed drums, very, uh, very basic stuff. So he played, uh, had an amp, full PA set up, he would drag around and, and play. And, you know, he did it for two reasons. You know, he, he was supplemental income, but it was his other job 
provided for the family. He had worked at Chrysler, but it was supplemental income, but he just loved to perform. You know, he always wanted to be in a band and do it. And then he just, you know, settled down, had two kids. He had a crazy journey. He played uh, minor league baseball with the Detroit Tigers organization. So, you know, he had all these different things, which, you know, ended up working out for him. You know, my brother went on to play baseball at North Carolina State, was a star baseball player there. And I got to, so my dad got, got to live vicariously through both of us. But yeah, those are my earliest memories. And, you know, we always had a guitar around the house. I, I would, dad would, you know, he showed me like bar chords and stuff, which I never was really good at. And, you know, he showed me open chords. I knew what a G and a D and a C was, but I, I always just, you know, envisioned myself as a singer. I never really had asper, aspirations to play guitar. And my brother had gotten this guitar for his 13th birthday, this Yamaha guitar, and just sat under his bed and didn't do anything for, you know, probably two, three years, four years, just sat under there collecting dust. And I went off to the University of Florida mm-hmm. and I thought, what the hell, I'll bring that guitar something to fart around on. And still, I, I wasn't really even playing at this point. You know, I was four months shy of my 18th birthday. Um, when I say I knew a few chords, it was just the basics and I wasn't good at it. And so took the guitar to Gainesville and I started auditioning, you know, this is back when you'd see uh, at the record stores or the bong shop or, or on telephone poles, you'd see singer wanted or guitarist yeah. wanted you tear off, tear off the piece of paper at the bottom with your name on it. And I started doing these, these auditions for these uh, bands and 1991 was a very strange time. I remember showing up, I've told this story before. I remember showing up to an audition and uh, there was like one guy in the corner, like a dead Kennedy shirt on and a mohawk and like a pierced nose and, you know, shitty tattoos. And there's like another dude that looked like Eddie Vedder. And then there was the another guy that looked like he was could have been a Motley Crue, you know, like there was an identity crisis going on. And and I'd get in there and they'd be like, yeah, we want you to like have like the attitude of the Sex Pistols, but mixed with Queensryche. And yeah, but throw in a little Pearl Jam. It's like, what? What? So... And then I was another band that I went and tried out for that was like this punk band and they were just, they were just shitty. They just weren't good. And I, I was frustrated my first, you know, six to eight months there. I was frustrated that I just, I knew what I was hearing in my head and I just picked up that guitar. And as evidenced by my failing grades, I would just stay in that apartment that I was in those first two years. And I was just playing along to every record that I could, every record that I liked and just... Yeah. You know, I was blessed with a good ear for both singing and for picking out guitar. My dad picked everything up by ear. He would learn anything. He could he could just pick it up and learn it. So uh, that's what happened. That's how I started playing. I love, especially there's something about listening to records that you love and then just starting to pick up on progressions and just absorb them and just absorb records. Because like when you're looking to write stuff eventually, you're not pulling from a dry well because you've kind of filled it with all these different songs and progressions that you've kind of just absorbed that come out into your songwriting, whether you know it or not. What were some of the records that you were kind of breaking down or just trying to play along to? Nothing really difficult in the beginning because, you know, my, my style has always just kind of been in the punk rock vein. I mean, I, I've branched out over the years and, and I'm always trying to, to push myself now. You know, um, I'm actually got a guy that's a jazz guitarist that, uh, I may start taking some lessons from, you know, it's never, you're never too old to, to keep learning. He's a friend of mine and he he's offered to, he's a phenomenal player, but you know, this was just basic stuff. I was jamming along to, uh, you know, bad religion records, you know, early, early mighty, mighty boss tones, operation Ivy, just, you know, picking out songs and, and, and you know, trying to figure out the riffs and, and play along with them. Now, especially when it comes to ska, I feel like what's distinctive is 
the strumming patterns. And it's just like a lot of those shapes and offbeats, which even if you don't know like the count or anything, but you can tell the feel, like how would you describe like Scott guitar to someone that's just like, I don't know what that is. How would you describe kind of like some of those, those strumming patterns? It's basically taking a reggae record at 33 RPMs and playing it at 45 RPMs. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's kind of upstroke reggae type jink, jink, guitar uh, that's just sped up, you know, and I don't really know how to, uh, again, my dad always had that quick hand. He was just very, very quick yeah. rhythm, rhythm player. And it really came natural. It wasn't, I don't even even know how to describe it. Um, just very, very natural. It's the other stuff that I'm trying to get into that it's funny. Everyone's different. They're, they're, I know players I'm just going to throw this out there. Someone like Eddie Van Halen, you know, I don't know if Eddie Van Halen could pick up the guitar and sound like me playing ska, you know, if, if he were alive, rest, rest yeah. his soul. Um, or, or Ingve Malmsteen or any of these guys, I can't pick up the guitar and sound like them. That's for damn sure. Um, even if I could play arpeggios and play that fast, but uh, you know, some really technically advanced players, I've, I've been backstage with guys in bands that can run circles around me technically as a guitar player that go, I just can't do that, dude, you know, play that. And it's funny because I look at them and go, well, I can't do what you do. So I think that's amazing because it's, you know, to have two people, distinct styles, you know, different from each other. And then suddenly looking at them and being like, man, I can't do what you do. And the other person thinking, I'm thinking the same thing, but I think that's the beauty of playing and also songwriting. You can hear a song and be like, ah, I can never write like you. And then another person's like, I could never write like you. And that's kind of the beauty of it. We're not meant to write always like some other person. We're meant to find kind of like what makes us unique or just our own style and just kind of live into it. Yeah, well, and that's the hard part of as you get older as a songwriter is there's two things. You don't, well, most people don't want to rest on their laurels and repeat the same thing. Yeah. You know, I always give the example of, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to paint the same picture you did in preschool when you're 15, you know, and then when you're, when you're 25, you're not going to write the same uh, type of style of poetry you did when you were 12 or 15. So you, you evolve as you grow up, but at the same time, everyone does have a certain style. I try to remember where I came from stylistically, but I also want to push the, push the envelope and the boundary and get better. And I always know my move too. It's like, okay, I'm writing this killer song. It's like, okay, well, my first instinct is to go here for the bridge because that's what I've done in a million songs. The hard part is going, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to make it interesting and I'm going to make it better than if I just would have went with my instinct. And a lot of times it's not better. And you, you, you resort to going back to that instinct. You resort to going back to that familiar place. And sometimes the familiar place is the place it needs to be. And other times it's like, yeah, I already did that trick and everybody else is going to hear it. And it's not as good as when I did it in that other song. Especially with your, you know, stuff now, how would you describe your writing progression? Like maybe in the early days of Less Than Jake, when you guys started, you know, started forming together and playing shows. It was just, you know, there, there's some songs of ours that were the same three chords for, for two and a half minutes. It never changed progression at all. Just the, maybe mm -hmm. the melody changed. And there's something cool and primitive to be said about that. You know, some of the most famous rock songs ever, Twist and Shout, Louie Louie, and, you know, they were the same exact chords over and over again. Wild Thing, those three songs, same, you know, GCD. <laughs> but as it we progressed, you what you talked about, you, you, you listen to a lot of different stuff. And as I've gotten older, 
you know, I don't, I don't have the, uh, the punk shades on anymore of just looking down the punk, you know, wormhole or, or, or listening to heavy stuff. Like I listen to all different stuff and that creeps into your influences. And, you know, a lot of our newer stuff has gotten more riffy. I'm playing stuff that's, that I'll write a riff and I'll start singing over it. And then I'll say, well, damn, I have to, now I have to actually play that and sing that at the same time. You know, like you, you, you record something, you're like, how the hell am I going to play that and sing it? Cause your hand's doing this and you're like, your brain has to sing a counter melody to whatever your, whatever your guitar playing is. And so that's been kind of a, a cool challenge. You know, there's a song on the new lesson Jake record called keep on chasing. That's very, it's like Van Halen meets descendants meets Def Leppard. You know, it's just really riffy and got a lot of parts and like it's it's moving as I'm singing, you know, and I've always really admired players. Uh, the, one of the best ones well, to come to mind mm-hmm. um, is is I think James Hetfield is probably one of the most incredible rhythm guitar players ever. And he does a lot of riffing and singing. But Dave Mustaine from Megadeth is another one that just. It's like dun, 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 dun. the guitar is just his hands doing all this. And like, he's singing a counter melody to that. I'm like, how the hell are you doing that? You know? And that, that interests me as a songwriter of, of how I can write something super catchy guitar wise and have this melody bouncing off of it versus just being like a G D and singing. Cause I've done that for years and yeah. that can be cool still, but I'm trying to branch out and still make it sound like me and sound like us, but not be the same finding new ways to present yourself. And I, you touched on something that I feel like sometimes people are resistant to. Like you said, I had the punk shades on. At what point did you realize like, you know, these shades have to come off and I have to look at other stuff. Was it just like you were drawn to other stuff, other songs, or you realized if I'm going to grow musically or as a songwriter, it's absorbing some other things to just slowly take in and then use. Well, I was always absorbing different things, but Mm -hmm. I had a vision of what I thought the band needed to be. And that those shades came off in 1999 when we made our, what was to be our fourth full length record and third for Capitol Records, an album called Borders and Boundaries. And that album ended up, uh, we ended up leaving Capitol. That album came out on Fat Records, but that's here and there. It was during that time period. And there's songs on that album that were just way more rock oriented that had guitar parts to them they weren't just these just straight out of the gate hauling ass punk songs they started to take on a different feel a little different uh dimension to the songwriting on that and that album was a turning point for me i remember that record because i remember learning some of those riffs in between i'm trying to remember I'm humming it out and I know that's terrible. I'm like, cause you're giving me a look of like, Mike, what the hell are you humming out? But I remember too many songs. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to pull it up because I remember sitting and I think that's what I liked about it because it fades in. I think it's uh 1989. Yeah. Okay. Or maybe last hour of the last, last day of work. That was what it was. It slowly fades in, but um, bump. And I remember just being like, that's such a hooky line, but yeah. that's the thing that starts. And I'm always obsessed with things like that too, where a hook starts the song, like a guitar line, but then as everything builds in and the vocal melodies happen, it finds its place in the song, but suddenly well, are- you're noticing that vocal melody more. And it's just like, it's incognito. It's still there but it's no longer front and center. It's kind of like whatever it needs to be. 
Well, that was the one of the songs that on the record uh, that was branching out. And that Roger wrote that song. He wrote that riff, mm -hmm. uh, Last Hour to Last Day of Work. I came up with an, another track uh, called Is This Thing On on that record that was just very just kind of almost starts off as this rock ballad. It's just got this guitar and me singing and then the band, this rock. It's just a big rock song, you know? So we were starting to just... And those were all of our, Roger and I, our influence in, in growing up was 80s pop, 80s, you know, hard rock and, and, and 70s, 80s rock and roll. And that started to shine through on that record. And it's been, you know, been shining through as, as the band has went on. And it's cool because, it, you know, we're not just one dimensional. You know, there, there are some bands that it's just, they just stayed to one thing. And, and sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. And, and we just always wanted to kind of push ourselves. Do you feel like, especially with the bass that you have, that you've grown over time because you guys have grown, uh, you know, I feel like a supportive fan base when I think of you that has allowed you to branch out and they just kind of like are receptive to that change because they're changing as well because there are a lot of people that you've had in the beginning are growing with you and they're not kind of just staying in that one, that one zone. Yeah, you know, it's, we're definitely, and I don't say this like, no, no one's really selling records anymore. So you can't base it on that kind of popularity. And we were never really on the radio, but you know, our band's bigger now than we've ever been. And two years from now, we're going to be bigger than we've ever been in the sense of people knowing us. There's yeah. always, you know, our fans now have uh, children that range in age from, you know, two years old up to 20, their college age, 24, 25 years old. And we got grandparents that are coming to see us. You know, a friend of ours is like 67 years old. He still comes to see the band play. You know, he was, I remember when he first started to come see us playing in the late nineties, he was my age now. And I'm like, well, who's that old dude here? Why are you here? And I love your band. I'm like, how could you like my band? You're like about to die, you know? And uh, he's still, still coming to see us play. And uh, now people are looking at me going, dude, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like especially in your time you've seen trends come and go and people that try to ride that wave and bands try to start up and try to be like that sound but you know that sounds going to disappear and it's going to be something else and then other people try to ride that wave what made you stay on the course that you guys did even despite trends and things coming in where some of the trends were ridiculous and then they just slowly faded away well, you can only be who you are at the same time, as much as we always tried to push ourselves and do, do different things. We, we stayed true to, you know, what the heartbeat and the pulse of the band was, you know, we, we were always going to be known as a ska and a punk based band, but you know, if you, we knew early on because see, we saw the whole evolution of it. I was first introduced to ska in the late eighties. And then when I met our old drummer, Vinny, him and I grew up together in a small town in Florida this before Gainesville was ever even on the, on the, the thought or the radar. And he was really into punk rock. He was getting me in, in high school into punk rock. And, and so I dove in head first and this is before rancid offspring green day, any of this went mainstream. So we saw this groundswell happening. And by 1998, we saw the writing on the wall. We're like, Okay, our, our little scene, our little scene had its 15 minutes of fame. We can't continue to go out on ska bills with three bands with horn sections before we play for a couple reasons. By the time we get on stage, no one wants to hear fucking horns anymore. They've heard it for <laughs> three hours or just go out with just punk bands. Yeah, uh, there's going to be diminishing returns. That's not a disrespect to the punk or ska genres or to us or to any of those bands we played with. 
Um, you know, you could have one punk band on the bill or one Scott band on the bill, but to just keep it the same, you know, I'll, I'll use the term again. We, we, we saw the writing on the wall. We knew it was diminishing returns. So we started doing just wacky things. We wanted to, to continue to grow the fan base. You know, we took a Bon Jovi tour in 2000. We went out with uh, Newfound Glory and Good Charlotte, who were at the height of MTV TRL fame. We took an arena tour with them where people today still come and see us and say, I saw you on that on that tour. We went out with Lincoln Park, Corn, Snoop Dogg, and The Used on an amphitheater tour in 2004, the Project Revolution tour. Um, so we were, we were constantly going out, and, and, and even on our own shows, we would go out. We had this connection, of course, because Vinny started Feel by Ramen, but we were taking out bands like Gym Class Heroes. Yeah. You know? and, and some of our fans would be like, you know, the, the two punk for school, like, why'd you take that band out or this band out? And it's just like, if you don't like it, just go get a beard on the street because we're not going to take out the same bands yeah. over and over again. We, we, we like that band. And if you don't like them, that's not our problem. We're here to provide a show and to have it be, you know, be different and not just be the same. So we, we had that vision. And I think that's what, what's helped us is we never limited ourselves. And that's why we can get over to anywhere in the world and play a festival sandwiched between an EDM band and a death metal band. And we're going to go out there and kill it. And we're going to, you don't even have to like our music. You're going to have fun at the show. How would you describe right now, especially in this last record, your writing process? Because I, I know from past interviews, you said like Vinny would do lyrics or he would give like bits and pieces. And then together you would form that you know you would contribute some lyrics to and then kind of rearrange it how was this record a little bit different it was different because we were and i use this term loosely it wasn't like there was a dictatorship on on anybody's part or vinnie's part in the band but we had to bring lyrics in yeah our chief lyricist was gone so we were allowed to bring our notebook in i was allowed to look through my my my, my journal yeah. and and bring those lyrics in we had to we didn't have our main lyricists so roger and myself and, and jr we've always written songs the hardest part about losing a lyricist or or a main song a lyric you know i say songwriter roger and i always wrote the songs and jr has been writing the last 10 years or so but the hardest part is is, is being like okay well we're still the band and we're still you know, have our emotions as songwriters. I can never be Vinny. I can't be you. I can't be anybody but me. You know, I can't. And if I were to sit and try to write in the style of Vinny, I would fail miserably. So we couldn't try to emulate his imagery of lyrics. Um, if we did, it would have come off as, as just uh, contrived. So all, all we could do is write from the heart and write what we know. You know, and I think that's the biggest thing that I'm that I'm proud of of this record. You know, because by no means did uh, anybody want Vinny to step step down from the band and 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 lose those lyrics. Those lyrics are our identity. That's how we built the this band all these years. But at the same time, we could not regress and move backwards and be like, well, we have to try to write like this. It's like, no, I I can't. Much like he couldn't write like me, or I can't write like you. You have to write from the heart, and I think that shows. I think that uh, you know people have really, again, the fans. I think this is a record finally that we're able to. If you didn't like less than Jake before, I think that you're gonna this this record will surprise you. 
because we've, we, we, I think we took things up a notch. Our super fans that have been following us forever, th- we knew that they'd love the record and they've come out in, in undying, you know, unending support for it. And there's been very few naysayers of the album. And anytime someone is a naysayer album, I say, are you a fan of the band? Yeah, but I don't like your new stuff. It's like, that's cool. We're only going to play probably one or two songs off it. We're going to play all the shit you want to hear on Hello Rock and Losing Streak. So I'll see you at the show. Buy a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> thing too you know when bands present new material it's like they're not just going to strictly play just the entire they're still going to play the things that you love but it's like when you love a band it's like a person yeah there's some things that maybe you're not always going to be crazy about but then there are things that you love about it and you still show up anyway and you know you're going to be there and you're going to support it and i think that's fantastic and i feel like especially during this well 2020 i feel like you've been super innovative in staying active in a world where it seemed like music was slowing down because things were stopping you started a podcast you were recording a solo album it just seems that you're just constantly you took what could have been not the greatest time and you made the most of it uh the the wheels for that were set in motion before the lockdown you know i'd kind of wanted to have a uh kind of a reset button on the you know, definitely on the back half of my life, you know, you get to be middle age, you're, you're, you're on the back, you're on the back nine now. So, you know, who am I? What do I want to do? And uh, it always goes back to music. I've always, uh, music has always got me through everything. It's always provided for me spiritually, emotionally, financially, etc. So how do I harness this? How do I do different things and still keep? And when the, the lockdown happened, you know, for me, it was like, okay, the only thing that changes is that I can't go out and tour. That was it. But I knew last March, I said, granted, and this isn't to take away from people that have had a struggled financially, had a hell of a time. But if you're going to take sporting events and concerts and bars and bowling alleys and movie theaters away from the population and people aren't out pissing money because we like to piss money away. Humans do. It's, <laughs> it's just natural. That's why I never keep money in my wallet. I just keep my card because if I have money, it's going to get pissed away. It's easy. It's like, yeah, let's go to a movie. 40 bucks. Let's go to dinner before 40 bucks. Uh, on the way home, I'm going to stop at a gas station. Oh, you grab something there. You're at $120 and it's just one, one evening. We've all done it, right? Well, if people are home and they're not spending that money, they're going to have some disposable income meshed with the fact that they are starving for entertainment. You know, they, they've already exhausted their Netflix and Hulu accounts. They have nothing to watch. So I've been able to provide entertainment that people have latched onto. It's been really cool because, uh, again, the only thing that changed for me was I wasn't allowed to to go on the road, but everything else, uh, you know, I wrote a book. The book came out, I did the solo record. I write custom songs for people. I do video consultations, much like you and I are doing right now, uh, one-on-one songwriting, producing, uh, fielding questions about the general music uh, business questions, you know, how to better uh, promote your social media, whatever questions you would have for me, I I do that. So it's been cool. And I've had people jump on a call with me, Uh, had a fella from Cincinnati who we got on and he had said that, yeah, I want to write a song with you. And we got on to do the Zoom thing. And he was just like, yeah, man. He says, I kind of want to write a song, but he goes, you know what? I just just had had a rough time lately. I haven't been able to do what I like to do. I haven't been able to go out and enjoy myself, meet my friends for, you know, we like to go out and play pool after work on Fridays and get drunk. And, you know, he says, 
I just want to hear some tour stories. Do you mind? And I said, I started laughing. I was just like, okay, this guy hired me to tell him tour stories. Like if I met you after the show, I, you know, it was just, <laughs> just, so I would have told you all night long about it, but he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I want to support you as an artist. And he said, this is going to be my, and I think it was a Friday. He's like, this is my Friday after work. And we stayed on the call for probably a half hour after his allotted time. We just yeah. bullshit. And at some point he looked at me, he's like, Hey man, we're almost out of time. I'm like, dude, I'm not done telling the story, you know? <laughs> and uh, so things like that really yeah. made me just appreciate not only what I have, but appreciate the fans that we have. You know, it's been, it's been a really, it's been a really great year. And I'm hesitant to say that um, out loud sometimes because I know people have had a really crappy year of some people and yeah. it's been really difficult for them. And I don't mean to say oh, I've had the best year ever. It's, you know, but, but I have, I've had a really positive year because I realized early on, I can't change this man. I, and nobody can, I can't fight this. Um, and if I try to fight it and I, I, I go down that uh, fork in the road, things could get bad because there's nothing worse than being depressed that you can't go do what you love to do. But I feel like something like that, someone just being like, can you tell me stories? Can you just like, you know, uh, sometimes I hop on a call with someone when we're going to, you know, go over, you know, they want to go over like new things for songwriting and they want to work on guitar technique. And we end up spending just an hour talking about just like, well, why do you want to do this? And they were like, well, I don't really feel. And suddenly there's always so much more. There's more than just a song. There's more than just looking for things, but they want, you know, the connection. They want to, you know, just to share, share something with someone for a little bit, whether it's just someone listening to them or in that case, them just listening to our stories and be like, this was fucking awesome. This is exactly what I needed to get me through the rest of the week because I've been missing that. I've been missing that sort of connection with someone or friends or anything within this current scenario. Yeah, no, I mean, that was that was the only call I had taken. Most of them are, are okay, I got this song or mm -hmm. hey, our band's been doing this and we just want some advice and I'll, I'll have five band members on a Zoom call and we'll be talking <laughs> and, and, and just bouncing ideas off them. And mm -hmm. it's been really neat. Another guy wrote, he was he was putting this uh, this book together and he was just talking to me about like what I, from a musician's perspective, how he could get hit. He had a really unique idea. I won't go into all the details of it, but it was a pretty cool idea. He went, goes to different bars and passes these books out and it, it's kind of like this, chain letter that happens within bars. It's a pretty cool idea, but he came to me wondering like, I want a different take, a different perspective on this from someone who creates music. How would you, and by the end of the hour, I gave him a lot of advice. He's like, man, this is all, oh, this is really cool stuff. And he was really happy. So it's been fun to be able to, to give back in that aspect. Um, not just, uh, it's, it's been rewarding financially to support, uh, you know, my family in a time when I can't go out and, and, uh, make our usual, you know, money on tour, but, uh, it's been way more for me, spiritual, you know, food for the soul. It's been, it's been great. Dude, that's awesome. And your podcast, um, is fantastic because you're talking to all these different songwriters about like a particular song, breaking down the process, you know, concept to finish product. And what are some of the biggest takeaways from some of the guests that you've, you know, had on there and just some of the surprises maybe to songwriting wise? Just the fact that I think there's a combination that I've been friends with a lot of the guests for a long time and I'm coming at them in a different way. Um, this isn't your typical interview. I don't care where the band name came from or, 
I don't care that, you know, your last manager sued you for a hundred million dollars. None of that. I never asked those questions. I don't care. And I don't care because I'm on this side of it too. I'm a, I'm a, a guy in a band who's, I, who I've done more shitty interviews in my life than I can count. <laughs> so that was the big thing is had to have a, a central theme, which was songwriting. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people, even that aren't friends of mine that I've had on, th- their guard is, is completely down because they're not going to get hit with the, so was this song really about uh, Brad Pitt or whoever you were dating or, you know what I mean? Like I leave that up to them. Yeah. If they want to divulge. And I've gotten things out of people. You know, I did an interview with Bill Stevenson from Descendants, which is just incredible. It was, it was uh, a really, you know, I had known the story, but he went 10 steps further. It got emotional. And uh, I got another one coming up soon that's not released that, that that gets that way too. So just being able to extract that human emotion, being able to, from the very beginning, be able to separate. And I've had people, I had a guy interview, interview me the other day say, it's just so weird. Like, you know, I thought I knew who you were like on stage, but you know, like I hear your podcast and it's just, like, it's, it's so different. Well, cause I consciously made it that way. I didn't want it to be who I am on stage is loud crass guy in a punk band like hey fuck you the guy by the hot dog stand like that works in that arena but this i wanted to be pg-13 you can listen to it with your grandkids driving down the road that was important to me too because i didn't want this to be looked at as like something funny or comedic no this is about songwriting it's about that human emotion And, and what have i learned about songwriting the second part of your question i've learned a ton i've analyzed songs in a way that I've never really analyzed them before. I get in there and I really, and, and my greatest compliment, it probably happens 90% of the interviews I, I, I do on the podcast is I get people saying at the end, wow, that was really different. These are people that have been in the business sometimes 20, 30, 40 years. Wow, I've never done anything like that before. That was, and I can't believe the detail you put into this. Mm-hmm. Because I do, I go line by line. I'm listening. I'm like, ooh, that guitar chord changes there, but it doesn't change anywhere else in the song. Why? That that intrigues me. That interests me. And um, I've been able to take away a lot from that, songwriting-wise. Especially when you, I feel like a common theme of what, you know, from when we started and you talked about like, oh, I was listening to songs and I was breaking them down to even now in your podcast, listening to songs in detail and breaking them down. I feel like your ear has always been drawn to just understanding the concept of songwriting and just kind of like absorbing it essentially. You know, I don't know who coined this. It might've been a producer years ago. But he's like, you know, what is the heartbeat of this song? Like, what's this guy talking about? You know, but every song has a heartbeat and that heartbeat could be that guitar riff. That guitar riff is just, yeah, the chorus is, is maybe what people are really going crazy for, but that guitar riff is the central theme of it. And it can't just be at the beginning. The guitar riff is too, it just hits you too much. Well, where could we have it come back? Oh, the last chorus, when we double at the end of the song, that guitar riff's got to be come back in, you know? And and you start to zero in on what's important in a song. I'm really interested now in getting into why something's not there. Why wasn't this in the first chorus or the second chorus, but now it's there in the third chorus because the song's growing. And now it's this extra bit of something that comes in, you know, and I always guess I knew that and I've done that with songs, but to sit here and look at a song this way, especially somebody else's song and dissect it. I've always been dissecting songs in, in between my ears, driving down the road from the time I was a young kid sitting in the back of my dad's car, listening to my dad play. I was always analyzing songs, 
but not analytically, <laughs> not, <laughs> not doing it like I am now. It's, it's a different thing. And, and it's, it's taught me a lot. I feel, especially when, if you're a songwriter, when you analyze someone else's song and you break it down and you look line by line, but you, but what you said right there, like, okay, why isn't this in this first chorus, but it's here in the second chorus, then it doesn't make an appearance here, but then that final chorus, it does. It's just like, that's interesting. I need to do more of that. Why is that? Why is this sound here? Why did you harmonize here? And I noticed melodically, you changed this one note right here in that second verse. It's interesting. You have a greater appreciation sometimes for things that you don't, you necessarily would have written off sometimes. And it just ends up, as you said, your view or your view of songwriting, you know, the punk rock glasses came off and you were looking at the trees and suddenly you see a forest and you look at like, holy shit, like there's so much more to songwriting. It seems just when you think you know everything or you get to a point where it's like, that's a lot. There's like a host of other things. Breaking these songs that I've started to, sometimes I have to rewind it like two or three times. Like, why does that feel different? There's, it it mm -hmm. sounds the same, but it feels different. Why? And then you'll finally zero in on it. I'll zero in on it and be like, oh. And I always go back to Howard Benson, who produced, well, he's produced everybody, but Howard did our Hello Rock V record and In With The Out Crowd record. And he's went on to do everyone from Kelly Clarkson to Chris Daughtry to My Chemical Romance to Event Sevenfold, you, you name it. And Howard, it might have been even during the Rock V record, you know, and this is the kind of nerdy shit that Howard gets off on. And like he passed down to me. I learned so much from him. He said, if, you know, the song uh, You Shook Me All Night Long by ACDC. Uh, Mutt Lang produced that. Mutt Lang produced a couple of huge ACDC records. He, of course, did Shania Twain stuff. He married her. He did Def Leppard. He did The Cars. He's done a bunch. He's world-renowned producer. He's like, yeah, Mutt Lang's genius for things like this. So the first two choruses of You Shook Me All Night Long is, you shook me all night long. And the very last chorus of the song, you, you don't know why it makes you feel differently. It's because the last chorus, and, and check it out after we uh, hang up today. Listen to the first two choruses. It's you shook me all night long. The last chorus is you shook me all night long. The all and the nights are dragged out on that last chorus. It's the same words. Yeah. The words haven't changed. So it, it's a mind fuck. You're like, what's well, the same words? Yeah, but listen how it's sung. The notes are hung out an extra two to three seconds, the all in the night. They're, they're stretched out. And it just lifts. It lifts that third chorus, just having that little bit. And those are the things, yeah. again, that, that make you, as a person, that human emotion, they make you feel something. And most of the time, you know, I've never had anybody, and I've told proficient songwriters that story about ACDC. And they mm -hmm. go, holy shit, you're right. They never realized it, though. You know, that's, and I never realized it until Howard brought it up to me. I love tidbits like that. I had one, um, one mentor, his name's Clay Mills, and he told me about line plus three. And he was like, oh, songs do that all the time. And I was like, what are you talking about line plus three? He was like, think of the Beatles yesterday. Oh, I believe in yesterday. He was like, there's a phrase and then you take a word and they break it down to three. He was like, think of the 1812 overture, but da, 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 da. And he was like, that's a three. And then he gave like all these song example. And I was like, holy shit. It's like, I never saw that. And now it's kind of stuck in my head and you can't help but see it or start to utilize it. Cause it's, I feel like analyzing songs helps you 
gain new tools to essentially add to your arsenal because it's just like or readily ex access things that maybe you have done before but you can now put a name to it and you can start to easily add that into your songs when you want to just when you think you, an old dog can't learn new tricks i've learned and i'm learning every episode that i do every time i get a new song to break down it's like cool here's another one you know and it doesn't matter it could literally be anything it doesn't matter what kind of a song it could be a song you know a, a, a style that i don't you know jazz fusion let's say that i don't understand but <clears throat> i'll be able to get into that and listen to it with my ear and be like all right that's crazy that time signature is really <laughs> weird. And then you went back to this chord, but it didn't go back to the initial chords. You know, I'd be able to talk intelligently about it and, uh, and, and maybe learn a thing or two. Chris, I love it. And I love your perspective on songwriting, everything you're doing. And thanks for hanging out with me and just talking about guitar, songwriting, and everything under the sun. <laughs> Rock and roll. Thank you. That was such a fun conversation. I really appreciate Chris for taking the time to do it. And for me, I've known about Lesson Jake for decades. That was the thing that I listened to. That was the reason, too. One of the reasons I picked up guitar. I remember I was in a terrible ska band. Uh, we wrote a song called Girls Don't Appreciate Ska. And I think one of the lines was from Acrobats to Less Than Jake. They don't think it's all that great. I know. Very profound. I don't know why we couldn't keep it together. But I know why this episode came together. It's because of Chris Vefalius. He edited and produced it. I'm Mike Myers. Thanks for listening.